Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Summer Podcast. This is episode 19. Today I will be talking about the murder of Jessica Chambers. My biggest source for this episode is the Jessica Chambers and ID murder mystery documentary. My other sources are investigationdiscovery.com slash crimefeed, thenewstar.com, people, clarionledger.com, and newyorkpost.com. All sources are linked in the show notes. It's difficult to imagine a more horrifying scene. It's like something from The Walking Dead. 19-year-old Jessica Chambers set ablaze. Arms outstretched saying, help me, help me. In this two-hour special, we'll dive deep into this wrenching mystery. You would not wish this on your worst enemy. An event so horrendous, it nearly destroys a family. She said, my love, mama. They took something from me that can't nobody replace. And divides a small Mississippi town. It was a hurtful thing for everybody. She was a good girl. Some of these guys claim that they are being racially profiled. We'll take you inside a series of hotly contested trials. If the judge doesn't keep a very tight grip on things, it can quickly get out of hand. He jumps up and just goes nuts. He goes to listen. I held onto her hand and I would rub her chest bone and say her name. Just a sweetheart. In a case with twists no one saw coming. Two torturous murders of two different women in two different states. Work has to be unanimous. Will the Chambers family ever see justice for Jessica? And he erased her from his life. Correct. Jessica Lane Chambers was born on February 2nd, 1995. She was born to parents Ben and Lisa. Ben was a mechanic and Lisa was a nurse. They separated when Jessica was just three years old, but they had always remained close. Jessica lived in Cortland, Mississippi, which is about 60 miles from Memphis, Tennessee. Jessica was very athletic. She played softball and did cheerleading. She graduated from South Yanola High School in 2013 and decided to work at a clothing store called Goodies while she was figuring out what she wanted to do with her life. Jessica had been known to hang out with people who weren't the best influences, and the police focused a lot on that during this case. Jessica's mom said it started around 2012 after her older brother, Alan, died in a car accident. It was very hard on Jessica, who was close to all her siblings. On December 6, 2004, around 8 p.m., two men were driving down a dark road in Cortland when suddenly they saw a fire. As they got closer, they realized there was a car on fire. At 8.07 p.m., they called 911. Two minutes later, the firefighters showed up. They suddenly saw something, something terrifying. The firefighters see something that looks like something from The Walking Dead. And they realize that it's a woman. A zombie-like person walking towards them, arms outstretched. The figure was saying, help me, help me. 
and it became very clear very quickly that she was nearly naked. Somebody uh, grabs a blanket and gets her covered at least, and they try to walk her to safety, and she doesn't get very far before she just collapses. Jessica was found nearly naked, and she collapsed after taking a few steps. The firefighters asked her what her name was, and she said Jessica Chambers. Cortland is a very small town, so a lot of these first responders actually knew her. My name is Daniel Cole. I am director of Panola County Emergency Operations. We start asking, who are you and what's your name? And it took multiple times of asking who she was. I mean, her skin was starting to tighten up and she's obviously breathed in superheated gases and it was a struggle to get anything out of her. Her mouth was burned terribly, but she said Jessica Chambers, the fire chief, knew Jessica Chambers from the town. Not very well, but he knew who she was, knew what she looked like. When she said her name, then they realized they actually knew who she was, most of them. Jessica was badly burned and her hair was singed, but she was able to tell them who she was. The first responders realized that someone intentionally set Jessica and her car on fire. They asked her, who did this to you? And so we tried to get as much information as we could. Then we started asking, who did this to you? She was having so much trouble enunciating her words. Jessica somehow finds the strength to try to answer, though her speech is garbled from her intense injuries. And what she says is extraordinarily important. They think she says Eric or Derek. This Eric and Derek debate is still something in this case that is a head-scratcher for many people. Jessica was airlifted to Memphis where they had a top-notch burn unit. Jessica's family is notified. I'm Lisa Chambers. I'm Jessica Chambers' mother. Debbie, Ben's wife, pulled up in my driveway. And she was hollering, they've set Jessica on fire. So I just grabbed my shoes and went with her. Ben, Debbie, and I um, got in their vehicle and drove to the med. I, I can't tell you what went through my mind. Jessica was still clinging to life at the hospital. She had second and third degree burns over 93% of her body. It was determined that she was in the fire for three to five minutes after it started until she finally escaped. Jessica was pronounced dead in the early morning hours of December 7, 2014, soon after her family arrived. I talked to her. I just told her that it was okay. That I didn't want to lay there and hurt. She could go. She didn't have to stay. That we'd be all right. And the weirdest thing is, no sooner than I said that, she went. And I just felt like she held on until she knew her family was there. After the car fire was put out, the police arrived and the investigation began. The police wanted to search for clues in the area. They found a cell phone, which was identified as Jessica's. There was also a scrap of clothing from Jessica's bra found. The police believed a sexual crime had taken place, and the items were sent in for testing. The FBI and the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation were also brought in for assistance. 
On Jessica's body, the investigators noticed a splash pattern. The doctor said some kind of accelerant was used, and the testing from the bra showed that the accelerant used was gasoline. Next, the police focus on Jessica's last words, Eric and Derek. SSA Tim Douglas asked for every phone number and address of every Eric and Derek in the area. Jessica's keys were found by a man named Jerry King. He was out walking with his child and noticed something shiny in a ditch. They were a set of keys and had a Ben's Body Shop tag on it. Ben's Body Shop was the name of Jessica's dad's business. The keys were a quarter mile from the crime scene. He called the police and they were also sent in for testing. While the police waited for the results, they wanted to learn everything Jessica did on the night she died. They spoke with Lisa and Lisa said Jessica went out and drove around with her friend named Keisha Meyer. She came back home around 2 p.m. and took a nap. Jessica then received a call at 4.25 p.m. and told her mom she was going to a convenience store called M&M. At 6.48 p.m., Jessica called her mom, and Lisa remembers the call being very strange. Well, last time I spoke to Jessica that day, it was kind of quiet. Normally, you speak to her, you hear music, but it was just kind of a, just quiet. She said she would be home in a little bit. She'd be home to clean the room up. And bye, I love you, Mama. That was the last I heard from her. The police went to the M&M store and spoke to the clerk, who was also the son of the store owners. He told the police that he saw Jessica that night and that if they wanted the surveillance footage, they could have it. Once the police obtained the surveillance footage, they saw that Jessica arrived at the store at 5.20 p.m. She got gas, went inside to pay, and made a call. Once this case was all over the media and internet, people started saying that the store owner's son, the store clerk, killed Jessica. He was originally from Yemen, and people called him a murderer and a terrorist. Ali was completely cooperative with the police. I gave the police the, uh, the camera system. But soon, social media trolls seize on the young man's story. People on the internet, they recognized that he was not... Caucasian. They saw that he was from Yemen, and they decided that he was a terrorist. He's the last one who sees her alive, and so, you know, it sort of takes on a life of its own on social media. But it was clear he wanted to help. He was very helpful. I actually went to the media and told them that Ali had nothing to do with this, and he had been cleared uh, by the FBI. People are just so terrible. He was cleared immediately. The police questioned Keisha, Jessica's best friend, who was with her on the last morning she was alive. She told them that she and Jessica had driven around, smoked some weed, and dropped Quentin off. Quentin Tellis is a local Portland resident. He lives with his mother. They live almost directly across from the M&M. He had been to prison a couple of times for uh, things like burglaries but always seemed to be let out early. Quentin and Jessica met approximately two weeks before her death. The police brought Quentin in for questioning. When he was interviewed, he said Jessica picked him up that day. They drove around and they dropped him off at his mom's house around 11 a.m. He said he never saw Jessica after that. The police asked him about his relationship with Jessica and he said they were just friends. The police asked him if he knew if Jessica was connected to any Derek or Eric's, and Quinton said there was a man named Eric Holmes who had a thing for Jessica. Derek Holmes had a criminal history and was a sex offender. 
He had done time for exploitation of a minor. There was also a few other witnesses that came forward and said Jessica would go into the M&M store and Derek would bother her if he saw her. Derek Holmes was brought in for questioning and he had a strange story for the police. We went and picked the young man up and brought him to the sheriff's office. Then they say, okay, what were you doing that night that uh, Jessica Chambers was killed? And he said, well, I was at home rubbing my mother's feet. You know, I kind of chuckled. I said, man, how can you remember that? He said, I rub my mom's feet every night. His mom has a diabetic condition. Of course, police have to check it out. I went down and interviewed both his brothers, interviewed his mom, uh, a couple other people that were actually in the yard that night. We know for certain that he never left the house that Saturday night on December the 6th. The reenactment made me chuckle a little too. I would hate to touch someone's feet. I think feet are the most disgusting thing in the world. But anyway, Derek was cleared. The police investigated about 468 Eric and Derek's and a Jarek, but they were all cleared. Many of them said that they were being racially profiled because most of them were black males. Was just called in to, you know, uh, in for an interview about a situation I didn't know nothing about. He said it was an uh, accident, I think, down the road, and uh, your name was mentioned. Well, he interviewed Eric's and Derek's. They were all cooperative. If they gave us an alibi, investigators were sent out to verify that alibi, and nothing ever came out of that. It didn't lead us anywhere. The police turned to Jessica's cell phone. It was damaged, but the police were able to pull a lot of information from her records. She didn't have one Eric or Derek in her phone. There was an unknown number that she texted for about a week straight. The texts were very sexual. From December 3rd to December 6th, Jessica was receiving messages that read, I'm horny, and things of that nature. This number was the number she called at 5.29 p.m. from the M&M store. The number came back to Quentin Tellis. Quentin was interviewed again. They asked him why he lied about his relationship with Jessica. Quentin said they had sex before in a field across from his mom's house in Jessica's car. He said that they would have to lean the seat back. The police's ears perked up at this because the seat had been leaned back when they searched the car after the fire. Quentin told the police that they had sex a week earlier, not on December 6th. The police asked Quentin how he got around if he didn't have a car. He said he had a bike and he took them to a shed on the property. While they were there, the police noticed that there was a gallon of gasoline in the shed. The police asked Quentin what he did uh, that day after Jessica dropped him off around 11 a.m. He said he didn't do anything until later that night. He said he went to Batesville, which is about a 10-minute drive from Cortland. Quentin said he bought a prepaid debit card for his girlfriend who lived in Louisiana. He said he went home after and arrived around 8 p.m., he said he heard about Jessica when he got home. He then deleted his messages from Jessica and said, quote, well, she's not around anymore, end quote. Deletes every trace of her. All the texts, her contact information, everything. To me, that seems so heartless. Now she's dead. I'm taking her out of my phone. After the interview, the agents try to run down Quentin's alibi. So the FBI agent goes to the French Dollar Store on Highway 6 in Baseball, uh, talks to the manager. In the convenience store surveillance video, you can see Quentin tell us buying that green dot card at 826, which was, of course, only 20 minutes after the 911 call comes in. The store is a 15-minute drive from the crime scene. It means he could have made it in time, but just barely. 
So as you heard, the police went to the store in Batesville where Quinton said he bought the debit card. Quinton is seen on surveillance cameras at 8.26 p.m., about 20 minutes after the 911 call. The store is about 15 minutes away from the crime scene, so the police realized it was possible for Quinton to have arrived after he killed Jessica. The police looked into other suspects, including a man named Travis Sanford. He was 28 years old and affiliated with the local gang. He had been in prison for burglary charges not too long before Jessica died. The two stayed in contact over the phone. There were rumors that Travis had put a hit on Jessica for seeing another man. The police did question Travis, but he was ruled out. They said he seemed generally upset about Jessica's death. Six months into the investigation, Jessica's case went cold. Paul Rowlett, an investigator with the U.S. District Attorney's Office, looked over Jessica's cell phone data and discovered something very shocking. At 6 p.m. on December 6th, Jessica's phone was showing that she was in Batesville, and so was Quinton's phone. They determined that Jessica called Quinton that night at 5.29 p.m., and by 6 p.m. they were together. The police wanted to speak to Quinton. They located him in Monroe, Louisiana. He was in jail on an unrelated fraud charge. Quinton said he wasn't with Jessica at 6 p.m. that night. He said he saw Jessica at a Taco Bell. He said he and his friend, Big Mike, gave her $10 and some marijuana and left. He said Big Mike dropped him off at home, and he didn't leave until he went to get that debit card. The police questioned Big Mike, and he said he was at a Tennessee Titans game that night and never saw Quinton. Quinton is confronted with this, and he said he was with Jessica. He said they smoked in a field across from his mom's house in Jessica's car. He said he left around 7 p.m. and went back inside his house. The police don't believe him and said that they had evidence that proves he was with Jessica up until the time she was set on fire. Quinton went ballistic in the interrogation room after this. He was not arrested until February 24, 2016, 14 months after Jessica's death. 14 months after the burning death of Jessica Chambers, investigators in Panola County, Mississippi, finally announced they have answers. I would like to announce the indictment of Quentin Verdell Tellis uh, in the death of Jessica Chambers. After Quinton's arrest, the community is divided. Many people were upset and said things like, of course, you're arresting a black man with the rap sheet. People also couldn't get over the fact that Jessica said Eric and Derek. Quinton's family raised money and hired a defense team from Jackson, Mississippi. On October 10th, 2017, three years after Jessica's horrific death, Quinton went on trial in Batesville. It was a very tense and sad trial. It's fair to say the atmosphere inside the courtroom was tense and sad. You're talking about a small town where everybody's known each other for a long time. It was really crazy. It, it really was. His family like sat on this side, then we were on the other side. This is a situation where these people that are in this courtroom, their lives have been changed forever. And they're looking across the aisle at each other saying, and it might be your loved one's fault. That was the first time I had looked at him face to face, yes. He looked like a cold-blooded killer. On December the 6th of 2014, Jessica Chambers was a beautiful 19-year-old. And Jessica was set on fire. He makes a very forceful and a very confident opening argument 
He says he has a mountain of technical evidence against him. Champion also attempts to head off the defense's most likely line of attack. I felt like in the opening statement, the defense was going to really focus on Eric Adair. And our strategy was to get that out early and get that out up front. It sounded like she said Eric or Derek. But please do not make a judgment at this point until you've heard every bit of this evidence because it will change your mind. I can promise you that. All attention moves to the defense and their opening statement. Darn Palmer really didn't have to say very much in her opening statement because she had some uh, pretty strong evidence and it came from Jessica Chambers. The evidence will show that what she said was that Eric set me on fire. She didn't say any other name. She didn't mention any other person. Palmer also tears into the state's claims of evidence. So the cellular phone records are just not as reliable as what you would think. Eric is not on trial here today. He should be. And for this reason, we will ask that you find Quentin Tellis not guilty as a result. The prosecution called Keisha Meyer to the stand. Keisha said there seemed to be tension between Jessica and Quentin, but on the 6th, there was no tension. To establish the dynamic between victim Jessica Chambers and her alleged killer, Quentin Tellis, the prosecution calls Keisha Meyer to the stand. Did you and Jessica drop Quentin off at a location in Cortland called the Sandbox? Yes. The prosecutor wanted Keisha to talk about a time about three days before Jessica died when she, Quentin, and Jessica were driving around town. There was this awkward moment he wanted the jury to focus upon. I guess he just needed a ride over there. And as he was getting out of the car, they had a hug. And, you know, Jessica made it seem like she was scared or something. And it just seemed like he didn't want to let her go. I know the feeling in the courtroom was that it harmed the defense. It seemed that this guy wanted something from her that she wasn't willing to give him. The defense fired back trying to destroy Jessica's image. She, she said she was a druggie and maybe made enemies by hanging out with the wrong crowd. The trial became very emotional when the first responders testified about what they saw that night. Cole Haley, one of the first responding firefighters, became very emotional when he talked about trying to speak to her. The prosecution then calls Cole Haley, one of the first firefighters to respond to the scene to describe the horror of the crime. You want the jury to see the emotional effect that her death has had not only on her family, but on the first responders. The trauma that they had to deal with and what they saw that night uh, is still lingering. When you first arrived on the scene, what did you see? Uh, I, I saw Jessica standing in the road. I got out and I got a blanket and she had her arms out, was coming towards me, saying, help me, help me, help me. What did she look like? What was the condition of Jessica Chambers? She had black all over her face. Her body was severely burned and she reached out for my hand. 
I held on to her hand, proceeded to lay her down on the ground, and I would rub her chest bone and say her name, Jessica Sweetheart. To have him on the stand was another very powerful stroke for the prosecution in setting the tone for the, the trial. I asked her, I said, who did this to you? She tried to say a name. I could not understand the name. She was fading in and out of me. I've actually never seen anyone quite that affected uh, by something testifying in court. He seemed so horrified still about what he had seen. Everybody in the courtroom, if they weren't already tearful, they were by the time he finished. When you have a guy like Cole and you need to cross-examine him, you have got to tread lightly or you will risk having every member on that jury hate you. Darla Palmer comes in and hands him his sworn statement. Says, read this, read this out loud. What did you say she said as her dying declaration? She said, somebody set her on fire. And when I asked, they set, on, they set her on fire, she would say what sounded to be aired. He starts to stumble. He told the prosecutor, he wasn't sure he could understand anything Jessica said, but there was a sworn statement saying otherwise. In fact, all the first responders said Eric and Derek was the name she gave. Jerry King was the next witness. He testified about finding the keys. When the keys were examined, there was four, four male DNA profiles found on the keys, and Quentin couldn't be ruled out. The defense said that Quentin had been in that car before, and his DNA would have gotten on the keys that way. Paul Roulette was probably the star witness. He plotted all the points from Jessica and Quentin's cell phones from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. that night. Hoping to connect Quentin and Jessica another way, the prosecution then calls their star witness. Paul Rowlett is an analyst for the Department of Justice and is very well known for being very good at what he does. Paul had really done his homework and, and he had gone through her phone records backwards and forwards. Quentin swears that he did not see Jessica again after they returned back from Batesville at 6.30 at night. But the prosecutors are hell-bent on making sure that this jury sees the data picture that has an entirely different story of the last hour of her life. And your role in this, you're trying to set out a timeline. I am. We knew through the phone data that her phone shifts to the scene of the murder at almost exactly 7.30 p.m. But we had a huge gap between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m. that night. So that's where we start. They also had surveillance footage from outside the M&M store, which faced Quentin's home. At 7.25 p.m., a headlight is seen in the direction of the crime scene. Jessica's phone records show that she was there. 15 minutes later, Jessica set on fire. At 7.50 p.m., a vehicle pulls up in the direction of Quentin's shed, where he kept the gasoline. He then kills Jessica. Jessica Chambers, the same girl that he claims he had sex with, he finds out she's been injured or burned. How many phone calls or texts does he make to Jessica to check on her? None. In fact, what does he do? He deletes 
and erases all of the calls and texts that he had with Jessica. And he erased her from his life. Correct. The defense said that you can barely see anything on the surveillance footage. No license plate, no driver, nothing. She also said that there are very few cell phone towers in Cortland, so the cell phone records aren't accurate. The prosecution's closing argument was that Quentin felt rejected by Jessica. For four consecutive days, he was asking her for sex, and for four consecutive days, she was rejected. It's in the text messages. What Champion focuses on is the number of times that Jessica told Quentin no when he... They said Quentin killed Jessica and sent her a message 15 minutes later for an alibi. The defense said that Eric should be on trial, not Quentin. When asked who set her on fire, she would say what sounded to be Eric. It's spelled Eric, E-R-I-C. Eric is not on trial today. But ladies and gentlemen, he should be. Their best evidence was that Jessica Chambers said that Eric did that to her. After six days of testimony, the jury goes into deliberation. One day later, they said they had a verdict. I've been told that the jury's reached a verdict. Is that correct? But I just need to know, did all 12 jurors agree on that verdict? Yes, sir, we did. All right. Would you hand the verdict, please, to the court, to the clerk? Excuse me. We all didn't agree on it. Sir? I looked over and I saw the juror shaking his head like, no, that's not my verdict. You said we all agreed on that verdict. We did. The verdict has to be unanimous. So all 12 did not agree on the verdict. Is that what you're telling me, sir? This courtroom was in utter chaos. Both sides. No one had any idea what was going on. And I have never in 30 years heard of anything like this. The first trial ended in a mistrial, so on September 24, 2018, Quinton is back on trial. Many witnesses, many witnesses and first responders from the last trial are back to testify. This time, the prosecution has another star witness, Dr. John Hickerson. He worked at the burn unit where Jessica was transported to. He wanted to tell the jury that Jessica's injuries were so severe that she probably wasn't making any sense. He also said Jessica had injuries to her body that proved she was sexually assaulted. Her autopsy photos were used and Lisa could barely look. I think I was in my own world. If I try to put her face to it, then I couldn't deal with it, sit there and listen to it. No. I'd take her face out of it and not just, it was somebody else. Hickerson is speaking uh, with these jurors, not at them. Darla has had her shots at him, but he's pretty confident. I think that really resonates with them. After five days, the jury goes in for deliberation. One day later, the jury can't agree. It's a six to six vote. Looks like uh, y'all don't feel like y'all are going to be able to reach a decision in this case. Is that the feeling of the jury? Yes, sir. I respect your decisions, uh, your inability to reach a verdict. Uh, with that, I'm going to declare a mistrial in this case. Eight months after the second trial, there's another death, and Quinton is the number one suspect. Eight months after the brutal death of Jessica Chambers, 
and before Quentin Tellis goes on trial for her murder, another terrible story unfolds in Monroe, Louisiana. An apartment building manager gets a report of a strange smell coming from one of the apartments, so he lets himself in. It is clear that there has been a struggle there, especially in the bedroom. There he notices the body of a young woman. A 34-year-old woman named Ming Shen Shao, aka Mandy, an exchange student, is found dead in her apartment. She was stabbed about 30 times and found 10 days after she was killed. When the police search her apartment, they find a receipt from Walmart from July 28th, one day before the police think she died. The police obtain the surveillance footage and Mandy is seen walking out, getting into a black Chevy Impala. Mandy had picked up a prescription and is seen handing them to a black male in the car. The police also obtain Mandy's financial records and see that her debit card had been used after she's already dead. The police obtain the surveillance footage from the ATM and on the surveillance, the same black male is seen using Mandy's card. The police run the license plate number and it comes back to Quentin Tellis. Mr. Tellis had recently come to Monroe from Mississippi uh, not too long before the homicide of Mandy. Quentin Tellis decides to move to Monroe, Louisiana to be near his fiance. Where? Right in Mandy Show's neighborhood. Quentin is taken into custody and he's charged with unauthorized use of a debit card. A Crime Stopper tip came in from a friend of Quentin's. The tipster said that Quentin admitted to killing and torturing Mandy for her PIN number. The tipster knew details that had never been released to the public. Quentin is charged with Mandy's murder, and he his case in Louisiana is put on hold until Jessica Chambers' case in Mississippi is over. In June 2019, Quentin ple- pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder. Lisa Chambers said she wants justice for Jessica and Mandy. I miss everything about Jessica. Although we argued like cats and dogs, she was more like my best friend. She's a part of me. She's lost. In 2019, Jessica's former boyfriend, Travis Sanford, died after being shot. They have a suspect, but they are unnamed. This case is so sad. Jessica didn't deserve this at all. No one does. I can't even imagine what she went through that night. I can see both sides of this case. I think Quentin is the only suspect that makes sense, but a lot of evidence is circumstantial. I also think people are focusing too much on the Eric and Derek theory, and a lot of people think she could have said wreck. All Eric and Derek's that were looked into led the police nowhere. I think Quentin is going to be found guilty for both Jessica and Mandy's murders, but for Mandy's case, there's way more evidence pointing to Quentin. He deserves to never get out of prison. My book recommendation for this week is Trust Me by Cheryl Brown. Summary, Emily and Jake are the perfect couple, or so everyone says, but Emily just read a letter that has shattered her perfect world. Now she has only one thing on her mind, which one of her friends is sleeping with her husband. Emily watches Jake as he makes small talk with their children, still the perfect man she married years ago. But when the phone rings and he answers before quickly putting it down again, she sees the look on her husband's face, guilt. She knows the signs after all. She's been lying to him for years. Working with Jake at the local doctor's surgery, Emily starts to listen at closed doors and read things she shouldn't, hoping to find the truth about her husband. Soon she learns that hers isn't the only family telling lies to each other. Is there anyone Emily can trust and who is behind the letter to Jake? When a second letter revealing a wife's hidden pregnancy is sent to the woman's husband, it has disastrous consequences. 
As more and more angry letters revealing people's biggest secrets begin to appear, fingers point at Emily. After all, she's the one with access to everyone's private history, and she's the one with a score to settle. Emily says she didn't do it, but this isn't the first time Emily has lied. What happens next will have you questioning everything. I enjoyed this book, but I enjoyed it a little less than some of the other books I read. A husband and wife who work together is already not a great idea, but I think the adult gossipy aspect of this of this book and Emily's suspicion did nothing other than get her worked up. As the, as the book went along, I realized everyone had secrets, and it was an interesting development, because usually one or two characters have secrets, so it was a nice change-up. I give this book an 8 out of 10. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, follow me on Instagram, rate and review, email or DM me for all case suggestions. I've been getting a few emails lately, and I love interacting with all of you. I will be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.